Holy Spirit, come now and please, Lord, in this moment, open our hearts to receive the word of grace. Lord, I pray for those who live with a sense of shame and unworthiness and yet are followers of Jesus, Lord. You are all the worthiness we will ever need. Help us to receive that in the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bind the, the enemy in any attempt that he would have to distract us from what you're doing among us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name for the power of God to go forth from the scriptures through the foolishness of preaching, that in the weakness of the human preaching, the great strength, the might of our God would be revealed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, uh, I, I apologize for the use of the non-lethal sonic deterrent uh, earlier in the service. That was only supposed to be employed if y'all got too rowdy and somebody hit the switch. I'm sorry about that. Um, but I think as we, I hope you were listening to the, the story from Jonah. I heard a lot of chuckles and you, you should be laughing at that because uh, I, I, we see God's heart and God's humor in that wonderful uh, story from the prophet Jonah this morning. I think we, most of us think we know it. You know, it's that story about a guy who gets swallowed by a big fish or a well. I think it was maybe a plesiosaur, who knows, some aquatic creature, and then gets vomited up alive on the shore. And those of us who know the story even better remember that God had called Jonah to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh, and that he was running away from that call from God, which was what resulted in, in him becoming fish food. So what we really get, though, out of the book of Jonah is this. I think if we, if we really dig down into that book, what it's all about is this. It's about, Jonah is about the outrageous, scandalous grace of God. It is a book about grace from end to end. The book of Jonah is about the fact that God loves, please listen, and I want you to hear it and apply this statement to you right this minute. God loves to do good to those who do not deserve it. Praise God. That's the gospel. God loves to do good to those who do not deserve it. Nineveh, the Assyrians, certainly did not deserve it. In fact, throughout the Bible, God seems to be going out of his way to find the most, most undeserving, cussed people in the world in order to bless them. That's what grace is. It is about God's goodness. It's about God's unwarranted favor. And listen, here's what I want you to think about as well, because we really hear that come out in the, in the parable of the, the workers in the vineyard. It is about God's unfair favor. It's about God's unfair favor poured out on people who don't deserve it. And like I said, the Ninevites certainly did not deserve it. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And in Jonah's day, the Assyrians were the military superpower of the ancient Near East. They were a brutal, cruel people. Their own records catalog horrible atrocities acts of cruelty that the Assyrians were actually proud of. They were, when they besieged a city, if they captured anyone <clears throat> trying to escape, they would impale that person alive on spiked posts outside the city in view of those captive in the town. 
When they conquered a country, they deported the population. Some captives would be boiled in tar. These are their accounts. Some would have been skinned alive and their skins displayed as trophies. These were the meanest, evilest, most warlike, ruthless, low-down guys in the ancient Near East. And in fact, they even destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel uh, in about the year 820 or thereabouts. And with that in mind, we need to understand a little bit of what is going on here in Jonah. And for us to do that, we need to flip over. You've got a pew Bible. You can turn to Jonah in your pew Bible, or you can just listen to what I'm about to read you from Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 through 3. Jonah is in the Old Testament somewhere towards the back of the Old Testament. Flip around, you'll find it. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It sounds like we're supposed to get the idea that Jonah is actually going to Tarshish. That's right, it comes up over and over again. And so that means it's time for a little geography. There should be like a little geography jingle at this time, but I don't have one to sing to you, sorry. But Nineveh, what you need to know is that the city of Nineveh, the, the seat of the Assyrian Empire, was 700 miles by road to the east, 700 miles by road to the east of Israel, Judah. And Tarshish was, and we don't think, we don't realize just how enormous the Mediterranean Sea is. It's huge. We think it's like, you know, the back, backyard swimming pool of Europe or something like that. But no, it's enormous. So from Israel, which is on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, to Tarshish, which probably in this case is uh, speaking about a Phoenician trading post, which is all the way through the Straits of Gibraltar, out through the gates of Hercules, and around and going up the, I, I love this, I love the sound of this, uh, for, the Iberian Peninsula. Don't you just feel smarter from hearing that? All right, so you go up the coast of Spain just a little bit outside and you're on the Atlantic coast. As far as any, that's where Tarshish was. And as far as anyone was concerned in Jonah's day, that was literally the end of the earth. So what Jonah is doing is he is getting as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can without falling off the end of the world as far as he knew it. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Well, it wasn't because it was an inconvenient journey. Going to Tarshish was an inconvenient journey. And it wasn't because he was scared of the Assyrians. If we'd read through the story there in Jonah, we'd know that when the storm comes up and they figure out it's because Jonah was in rebellion against his God and he's on the boat, they, he says, throw me overboard. That's not a scaredy cat. Somebody that's not, he's not fearing death. He thought he was going to die, but he goes right overboard. No, what he didn't want to do, he didn't want to go because he did not want to preach repentance. He did not want to preach repentance to those folks because the Assyrians were really, really evil. And he did not want to give them a chance to be saved from judgment. He wanted them dead. It's as if God called one of us to go and preach to repentance to right now 
in Africa, in Nigeria, uh, some operations in Nigeria and other African countries, particularly in North Africa, and now over just this past month in, in Ethiopia, it's as if God called one of us to go preach repentance to Boko Haram, Islamic terrorists, that every day throughout Africa burn churches, behead Christians, and make their children watch, they abduct women and girls to be traded for sex slavery. These are the world's worst people. They're the most brutal butchers in the world today. They deserve judgment and not a second chance. And, Jonah, and God is saying, Jonah, go preach to them. And Jonah says, oh, no, I'm not. Mm -mm, they need a predator drone. They don't need salvation. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Well, it was because Jonah knew, listen, Jonah understood and knew the character of God, and he resented it. Back to what we heard read this morning, Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This, this is, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to, to die than to live. The, the technical term for this is a hissy fit. Jonah's having a hissy fit. I knew it. I knew it. I wanted you to smite these Ninevites. I wanted you to nuke these guys. But no. They repent and you let them off the hook. Now I love what happens in verse where it says that Jonah goes outside of the town, he makes himself a booth. What he's doing is he's thinking, well, maybe something will happen and fire will still rain down out of heaven, and I just want to see those fireworks. Jonah, listen, Jonah had his, Jonah really did have his theology right. Jonah had his doctrine right. It's just that he really really resented it when it turned out to be true. Jonah had his doctrine right, but he resented it when it turned out to be true. Even when we, uh, even when we go around saying that God is a God of grace, we are often shocked when he acts like it, aren't we? You know, we have a long-standing saying at Christ Church, unmet expectations equal pain. Well, that is what happened. That's what's happening with Jonah and the grumbling workers in Jesus's vineyard of the uh, in the Jesus's parable of the vineyard. The workers in Jesus's parable in Matthew 20 complain. They're complaining because the vineyard owner seems to be generous to the wrong people. Jonah is angry because God won't do what Jonah thinks is right. In other words, destroy Nineveh. Eugene Peterson writes about this. He says, Jonah's sulking disappointment came from a failure of imagination, a failure of heart. 
He had no idea what God was doing. The largeness of his love and mercy and salvation. Listen, I love this part. He interpreted everything through his Jonah ideas, his Jonah desires. Now, beloved, these examples are in Scripture today because they describe our experience, too. We, too, have erroneous human expectations of, listen, what God is supposed to do. I've got people I love very much right now who are mad at God, not going to go to church, don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus, because he didn't do what I expected him to do. It's almost like he has a will of his own. It's weird. He goes around acting, who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> we, too, also interpret everything through our Jonah ideas and our Jonah desires. These Jonah ideas and de desires, these false expectations, they take root in our hearts because, listen, we all tend, uh, John Calvin said, the human heart is like an idol factory. We all tend to invent little pet gods. Our pet god is a little idol fashioned in our own image, and then we project our fantasies onto it. And you know we're dealing with that. You know We bring out our little idol, our little pet god, we bring it out for show and tell when we, see th when we say things like, well, my God would never do X. Do you hear that, that, those first two words in that statement? I hear this frequently. Heard, I, I literally hear it almost every week. Somebody says, well, my God, my God. Yeah, that's right, the little, the little pet God you made up. When we say, well, my God would never do that, X, or my God would always do Y, or my God should, should do this or that, we mean that we have God figured out. We've got him all figured out. And like a kenneled dog, he exists safely within the fences that we have erected for him. All right, Almighty, you go kennel up now. Mm. God hates idols. He hates our idols. God's in the, in the idol toppling business. He rejects our attempts to impose upon him our made-up fairy tale religion. God rejected and turned upside down Jonah's personal version of what Jonah thought God ought to do. You know, we hear it clearly in the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55. God explains this kind of behavior to us. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Like Jonah and, and like the workers in the vineyard, we, yes, even, even committed followers of Jesus Christ, can become embittered, embittered, when God does not do the things, do things the way we want him to do. Because, you see, we all tend to have, listen, we all tend to have a little script for God in our life. We have this fantasy for the way that things are supposed to work out. I, I know somebody that when they were in their undergraduate years in college, they actually had like a, um, an Excel spreadsheet for how their life was gonna unfold. This is gonna happen and I'm gonna do this and this is gonna happen and God sees that, that kind of stuff and he just thinks that's hilarious. 
We have a script for how we're going to marry that perfect person. You can't marry the perfect person because I did already. <laughs> we have a script. We have a script for how we are going to be respected and admired. We have a script for how people will look at us and they will think that we matter. We have a script for how our children will turn out. We have this script about how we're supposed to grow old gracefully and retire in comfort like we just didn't think 2020 was ever going to happen. We even have a script for our church, how it will be the first church of Goldilocks. Not too hot, not too cold, not too soft, not too hard, but just right. Something that fits our own personal preferences exactly right. You know, like in music or worship style. Now, you need to know, I, I was writing about this church this week and saying that I, how much I loved Christ Church. I love this church. But Christ Church is not the church I wanted to plant. But evidently, it's the church God wanted to plant. But then, as with Jonah, God steps in and behaves as if he is in control and changes the script, and it makes us really, really mad. God takes our expectations about how the world should work and he turns them on their heads. He, we are not nearly as important as we thought we should be. Other people, those other people, don't get their just desserts. And God keeps having mercy. Please listen. God keeps having mercy on all the wrong people. I mean, right here in the Old Testament, where we should expect to find, just like we always thought, right? You know, in the Old Testament, God is a mean God. He's just out smiting and judging and having wrath and fiery indignation all the time. That's what the Old Testament's all about. No, no, right here we found him to be full of compassion and mercy, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. That's not what we were told at all. You see, our flesh, our sinful nature has this tendency. You have it, and I have it too, so please listen. We have this tendency to resent when God shows mercy to others we don't think should have mercy. Our flesh resents God's unfair generosity. And if we are not vigilant, that resentful fallen nature can turn you and me into enemies of God. Beloved, we need to recognize and rejoice that whenever God changes the script, he always changes it in favor of mercy. Thanks be to God. Always in favor of generosity. Always in favor of grace. Did those guys who got hired at the end of the day in the parable of the vineyard deserve to get paid for the whole day? Absolutely not. That's crazy. But the script got changed in favor of God's generosity. There have been people in my life, people in my life, who were Ninevites. They were bringers of pain and destruction. They deserved punishment. They deserved smiting. 
but God keeps showing them generosity and favor. God keeps changing the script in favor of grace. And when I start to get embittered, it's because I'm just like Jonah. I forget that I was, I'm a rebel. I was on a ship to Tarshish. And I forgot how God rescued me when I should have been drowned in the sea of God's judgment. God rescued me when I should have drowned in the sea of God's judgment. I forget that God gave me a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. It just keeps happening. It keeps happening. I forget that I have been the bringer. Listen, I forget that I have been somebody's Ninevite. I have been the bringer of pain and destruction in other people's lives and that God showed me generosity and mercy instead of retribution. And you have been a Ninevite too. In Jesus Christ, God changed the script for us. There are those of us in this room right now, don't raise your hand, <laughs> who have really done terrible things. Things that, that we are really ashamed of. And if we were to think of those things apart from God's grace, which is exactly what Satan would love for you to do, it would drive us to despair, perhaps even suicidal despair. Some of us have been adulterers. Some of us have had abortions. Some of us have been thieves. Some of us have used power and privilege to wantonly destroy the lives of others and never even thought we were using power and prestige to do it. Some of us have acted out sexually in ways that are far, far, far outside of what God intended for the gift of human sexuality within the bonds of matrimony of a man and a woman. We, were on, we're not even, we weren't even on the same page. Some of us are drunkards or drug addicts or porn addicts. God's judgment stands clear before us that his wrath is against our sin and that those who do such things deserve death. But God flipped the script for us. God flipped the script for us. Thank you, God. Hey, will you say this with me? I'm going to say, grace is not fair, and I want you to say, thank God. Grace is not fair, Thank God. Ezekiel chapter 33. Oh, wait a second. That one's in the Old Testament too. We were, what were they trying to teach us in that Old Testament class in undergraduate school? This is not at all like what they said it was. Ezekiel 33 verse 10. Thus you have said, this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. Thus you have said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? He's flipped the script. We deserve wrath and punishment, and instead, 
instead of wrath and punishment, we didn't even get like, okay, just don't do it anymore. Listen, God made us his children. Now, I want you to think just a moment. Some of us are living under shame, a burden of shame right now. And, and you, you, it, it's, you really don't even feel like you should be here. But listen, sister, God tells you, the Lion of Judah says to you, he says, you are my child. Oh, what's that? Oh, there's a proverb. The daughter of a lion is a lion. You are God's child, daughter. Daughter, what you can't speak, what you're ashamed of, what your heart breaks about, what you put in a little box in the back of your mind and hope no one ever finds out about it, certainly not that preacher, you are, you are a treasured daughter. Man, under guilt, shame, <laughs> screwing up over and over again. 1 John 3, 1. For we are God's children. You are, God says to you, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. I have flipped the script. Jesus Christ takes God's judgment for our sin upon himself. The Bible says so. I know it bothers a lot of people today, this whole thing about God's wrath and Jesus taking the wrath and punishment that my sin deserved. That's because we're weak, innovative people who don't like the idea that we've ever done anything wrong, and yet we simultaneously live under this burden of shame. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the good news of God's word is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that through him we might be the righteousness of God. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. And so Jesus, the one who bore the sin and God's wrath on my behalf, he speaks to me from the cross and says, this is how much I love you. You're doing this to me, but I love you. The Father loves you. You, I will go to hell and back because of my love for you. The Holy Spirit cries out to you this morning, God loves you. Jesus loves you. The Father loves you. We may have come to the fields at the last hour, and instead of being given a mere crust, we get the same abundance as those who toiled all day long God loves you, cherishes you, calls you his child as much as he did Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. That's how much he loves you. Isn't that great? Thank you, Jesus. We need gospel. Good news. Good news. And because we have been forgiven much, I don't know if you remember the story of the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is at the Pharisee's house eating dinner. Sinful woman comes in, begins to weep and anoint his, his feet with her tear and breaks open a, a jar of ointment and rubs that ointment on his feet. And all the Pharisees and his really, really righteous friend buddies are thinking, oh my God, if this man was a prophet, surely he would know who was touching him right now. And Jesus says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. He says, tell me, tell me. 
He said, you see this woman, he goes through about all that she has done to love on Jesus. He said, Tommy, you didn't do any of that stuff for me. He, he, says, Let, he says, listen, this woman, this is Luke 7, 27, the, because her sins are many, she, she loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little. Here's the deal. Do you recognize, do you understand that in God's kingdom, please hear this, everybody. If you needed more grace, listen, if your sins were much more colorful and worse than your boring neighbor's sins, did you know that in the kingdom, if you needed more grace, that gives you a leg up in God's economy? Because he that is forgiven much loves she who is forgiven much loves much. For the truly born-again person, much forgiveness results in much love. And God gets more glory. When we come to the table, we have to face this table, the Lord's table. We have to face the outrageous, scandalous grace and generosity of God one more time he shoves it in our face through bread and wine. My body given for you. My blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Grace on my church. Grace on my church. Forgiveness on my church. You need it again. Yes, you do. I do too. Abundant grace. Warm, welcome love from a father that says you're my child. Come to my table. We have to face the fact that, that as Mike Iaconelli says, the grace of God is dangerous, it's lavish, excessive, outrageous, and scandalous. God's grace is ridiculously inclusive. Apparently, God doesn't care who he loves. When we come to the table, we realize that the Ninevites and those 11th hour workers are not out there. It's who we are. We were a bunch of Ninevites. We're a bunch of last minute workers. Recipients of outrageous grace. We do not get what we deserve. Grace is not fair. Thank God. We who deserve judgment instead find ourselves at the banqueting table of our gracious God. And what does it say? And his banner over me is love. <laughs> grace, grace, God's grace. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for refreshing us through your word. And thank you for refreshing us again with your grace at your table. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.